0: Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Thursday, April 15th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, April 18th. My name is Teresa Robinson. I'm on air with my co-hosts, Emily Scott, Jasmine Smith, and our special guests today, Judy Zylikoff and Anthony Bucerich. This week, we have a great show set up for you. We have an interview uh, with our guests uh, who are local scientists and organizers in NYC. Uh, We're going to talk about the ins and outs of the Dante Wright case that is happening right now. Um, Our good news is very interesting. uh, The new use of familial DNA technology. And then finally, for our international news segment, we will be talking about the lack of access to COVID-19 vaccines in the developing world. So we're going to go ahead and kick off our episode today with our local segment. Jasmine, take it away.
1: Okay, so this week, uh, we're going to be introducing you to two people that we'll be um, speaking with, hopefully on a somewhat regular basis on the show. Um, Our guests today are Anthony Bucereth, who's an organizer and the executive director of North Brooklyn Neighbors, as well as Dr. Judith Zelikoff, professor at NYU Grossman School of Medicine in the Department of Environmental Medicine. Um, so again, thank you both for joining us. Um, and I'd like to start out with asking Anthony, can you just tell us tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, where are you from? How long have you been in Brooklyn?
2: Um, great. Uh, thanks for having us. Um, so I am a native New Yorker. I'm born and raised in, in Queens. And I've lived in Brooklyn for the past 15 years. And actually, prior to that, I... um. Went to high school here in Brooklyn.
1: And what work does North Brooklyn
2: Neighbors do? A North Brooklyn Neighbors is a small community advocacy organization focused on the environment and planning. Uh, we've been around um, since 1994, so that's 27 years, working in Greenpoint and Williamsburg. Um, originally doing work to like reclaim the waterfront from, from um, uh, like trash and waste issues, and uh, power plants. Um, and As you said, I'm the executive director, um, and we're at there I get to lead a, a team of four staff and dozens of committed volunteers. Um, part of my role is to uh, work to ensure that the, the, the issues and the campaigns that we get involved with um, are data-backed, and they're valuable, and accountable to the community needs.
1: Okay. All right. And what other groups do you work with, like, in the community? Like, can you give some examples?
2: Um, So, like I said, we are a small organization. So um, the work that we do um, couldn't be possible without partnership. So we have coalitions and partnerships that are local. There's some that are citywide, some are statewide. Um, for instance, locally, um, we're uh, one that includes El Puente, um, Newtown Creek Alliance, and the North Brooklyn Parks Alliance. We form what's called the North Brooklyn Open Space Coalition uh, to look at open space generally. But we're actually going to host um, uh, later th- at the end of the month uh, a candidates forum for city council candidates um, on, on the issues of open space. Mm-hmm. Um on the citywide and state level, uh a couple of examples of uh coalitions and partnerships we were part of are uh, one is called Save Our Compost, which is uh interested in building up local organic waste infrastructure. We're also uh for minute, for several years been part of the Playfair campaign, mm-hmm. which provides for increased funding. Uh well increased and equitable funding for city parks. And um, we're also on the steering committee for something that's called the Clean Bus Coalition, which mm-hmm. is an effort to uh, more quickly transition to zero emission school buses um, because we know that exposure to emissions are, uh, makes the kids and the staff on buses sick. So, there's a few examples of the type of things that we get involved with.
1: Okay, great. So, very busy and a lot of doing a lot of very important. Grassroots work, it sounds like. Um, And now for Judy, can you introduce the audience to, you know, introduce yourself to the audience a little bit? Like, where are you from? How long have you been with NYU? Sure.
3: Sure. I'll be happy to. So, I'm, as I said, um, as was said, I'm Judy Zelikoff, and I am a professor at NYU Grossman School of Medicine in environmental medicine. And i born and raised and remain in New Jersey. um, And I went to to graduate school in New Jersey at the University of Medicine and Dentistry and got my PhD there and then started working early on, 1982, as a postdoc in NYU and the same department that I'm in now. And I do, I'm very active in research. I'm a toxicologist, and basically that is uh, a person who studies the effects and the health implications of, of toxic contaminants, and mm-hmm. like things that pollute the air, the water, the soil, and things that humans come in contact with. So I've been at NYU, Department of Environmental Medicine, for a long time. Okay,
1: so you you seem to um, start to touch on it a little bit, but can you explain for our listeners in layman's terms what is environmental medicine?
3: so the the big umbrella is environmental health, and environmental health um, means that anything in the environment that can affect humans and affect their health and bring about diseases or injuries, from an environmental perspective. Environmental medicine is one aspect of environmental health. And we we specifically look at those factors in the environment, and again, in water, air, soil, or any type of environmental surroundings that could impact your health and bring about what we call environmental diseases. And there are lots of environmental diseases, which we're well aware of, like asthma, which are associated with um, environmental contamination and pollution. Mm
1: hmm. OK. And um, what is the NYU Center for the Investigation of Environmental Hazards or the CIEH?
3: So um, I, I'm also a a co-director in the um, Community Engagement core of this center. And it is mm-hmm. a center that um, we've, NYU, and first the Department of Environmental Medicine and now Pediatrics, um, has from the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, which is an NIH institute. And it's a, a large program and, in which I, as I said, I serve as the a co-director for this program and that's how we got involved with Anthony and North Brooklyn Neighbors.
1: Okay so that brings us on um, to the next question I was going to um pass it to Anthony like how long have you been working with um Judy and how did you initially meet and come to work together?
2: So like everything um you know we have, we have an origin story um so uh Not a villain
1: origin story,
2: I hope. (laughs) Well, the villain is um, the local uh, legacy toxins in the neighborhood. Uh, So we'll start there. So North North Brooklyn, um, Greenpoint Williamsburg uh, was heavy manufacturing area district. Now it's heavily developed in construction um, uh, with residential towers. So about two and a half years ago, many um, local residents started complaining to us about fine debris they saw coming from Construction sites; um, it's often referred to as construction snow. Um, so, we began working with the local council member about uh, developing legislation so that can, we can improve regulation around the snow that's coming off of these tall buildings. While they're, mm-hmm. while they're going out, and um, but we also thought that it would be a good idea to get more data to better understand what the, the depth of the problem. Um, so that led us to connect with you know someone in our universe who. Um, was a, uh, who had some ex- expertise in environmental health. And she suggested that we um, connect with George, uh, Dr. George Thurston, um, who um, was a former professor of hers. Um, and he's also, he happens to be in Judy's department. So it was just a kind of conversation with, you know, people in, your, in our sphere led us to um, a conversation with Dr. Thurston. And he provided some valuable input on the type of um, like how we can get more data on the type of uh, uh, dust that's in the air, um, and we use that. And then a short while later, he actually connected us with a graduate student who um, w- collaborate with us on um, her thesis project. And then that led us um, to eventually led us to Judy. And I'll let her take it from there.
3: Okay, thank you, Anthony. So we, um, the graduate student that Anthony referred to is someone that both Dr. Thurston, who's a well-known environmental epidemiologist, and myself, a toxicologist, we both co-mentored her, and um, her project was concerning the air pollution in the um, surrounding North Brooklyn neighborhoods, and particularly around Greenpoint and Williamsburg. And so with that... um, There was air monitors that were put up um, and evaluations. And at that point, um, the community, as Anthony could tell you, was very interested in knowing what the chemicals are. Uh, And so we did more detailed measurements in trying to identify what all of the the contaminants uh, in the air might be and what if anything, uh, is associated with a lot of the concerns of the people in the neighborhood. So together, uh, we we put up uh, these air monitors to measure what we call volatile organic chemicals, and as well as to measure the, uh, the um, construction dust, as Anthony called it, um, which is made up of what we call particulate matter in the air, as well as to measure other other chemicals in the air. And so we've been in the process of of doing that and we're working together to evaluate the data and then to report the data back to the communities um, nearby where these monitors are. Anthony, would you like to add anything?
2: Yeah, I think um, the collaboration, I think, is pretty interesting because it initially started out with these like very... um, these things called portable um, uh, particulate matter monitors, which are you know kind of low cost um, monitors that um, we actually get volunteers to host at their homes. And they provide, um, you know, 24 hour real time um, readings that any community member can go in and look and see what level of particulate matter, which is like the dust particles that are in the air. And then, but that wasn't enough, right? So once the, the neighbor, neighbors, okay, we got we've gotten this network of of monitors around, and we can see the days that things are high and low. But that led us to a, another project, which Judy was talking about, where folks were more interested about not just that there are things in the air, but what are those things, and what's what what is and how will they affect us? And we're actually so that right. led us to a different project, which we're in the middle of. Um, And, you know, we have, you know, hopefully before the, uh, you know, fall, we'll be able to share some interesting findings.
1: Yeah, I feel like listening to you, it sounds like um, the work you're doing is a combination. Like the feelings I'm, I'm getting are like fear because it's like, what is this stuff? But then also it's empowering, like if you're able to give people the tools to really understand what's going on then that's the first step in being able to address the issue. So it's great that um, you're able to, you know, work together in that way to empower, you know, local people.
3: We call it citizen science. And after all, the people who are participating, it's their community and awareness leads to action. And so as you said, Jasmine, the first step is to make people aware of what's there and to make them aware uh, of any potential health hazards that are associated with things that might be in the air. And also to put them into perspective for for everyone, because uh, as a toxicologist would say, um, the dose makes the poison. So there are standards set by the EPA and other federal agencies, which... Um, using the literature and publications and data that are out there from other scientists, that where we say, okay, above this level or below this level, below this level is safe for health. And above this level, we need to look more into the data and realize that there may be some health implications associated with these kinds of With these kinds of levels. So it's it's not only to give awareness, but to put things into perspective uh, that this is not, it's here, but it may not be high enough to cause any problems. Or it may say that there is something there and we have to make people aware because you live there. You have to protect yourself. You're your own best advocate.
1: Right, like that's absolutely true. Like that's a great point um that being able to communicate these things in a way that is easily accessible for local people is so important. Because if you don't like fully understand what's going on or it's like people are talking over your head then the information isn't that useful if you can't really break it down and use it.
2: I mean, I would say I think that's a critical piece of, uh, the work that we do. It's that a lot of, you know, environmental, we talk about environmental and community planning and, um, things like, and of that nature. It can be very intimidating for an average, um, resident and community. Um, they don't, many of them aren't experts in this area. So, um, our role really is to help synthesize this data so that it's digestible for the average person, um, and you know I think we've been we, that's a critical piece of the type of engagement we we do with community residents i
3: like I'd like to also um, make a, a push and bring an awareness that I think community academic partnerships can really work and can move things forward and certainly North Brooklyn neighbors and Anthony and um, people that I work with in the community engagement, my students. We all work together. And the thing is that it's all for a common goal. And that is to help the community and bring awareness um, and capacity to the community. Um, There's no one that's going to help anyone more than themselves and more than the awareness that they have. And in, in uniting communities who uh, would like to build capacity in environmental health with uh, appropriate academic communities can really be empowering, and it's a great resource. Yeah,
1: like I really I admire you both for what you're doing, and I agree. Like it 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 shows that you know it's not just about publishing things you know for other people who are experts, but you can and should um, make these things like as accessible and digestible like for the local community like because if you don't like then what's really the purpose of the work that you do Um uh, so we're coming up to the end of our segment uh what would you say the two of you hope that our audience will gain from listening to you both as well as talking to some of your um colleagues and other organizers
2: i, I mean i'll say that i think that within the, in the community advocacy sphere i think our work is strengthened by data. Um, a lot of times we often are pushing, um, leaders to, on an issue or trying to raise awareness about a community concern. Um, and so I think that if, um, other groups or, you know, members of the audience are interested in, um, you know, an issue, it's really, um, if you can back it up with data and, and find partners who can provide that, um, it really can go a long way. And the other thing I would say is there's lots of challenges in any community um, and and it it could seem all really daunting, but I think that, you know, the the small part that you can do um, moves, like will push um, everything forward.
3: There are so many communities, whether it's in Brooklyn or it's in other parts of New York City or other boroughs or New Jersey, where I'm from, that really needs the knowledge um, and the interpretation of of data of science that they can use for their own knowledge base and that they can use to talk with with regulators and with policymakers, and to bring forward the scientific data. There's so often that we see things that are happening and we just can't back them up with the science. And unfortunately, we live in a society where um, coincidences happen, that while we may be aware of something, we, we don't have the scientific basis for it. And let's face it, it's hard enough to make our points, And without science and the regulators are going to make changes happen. Policymakers are going to make these changes happen, but you need to have science that can back up what you know is happening in your own community. So it's, it's been an amazing experience with Anthony. We're also working as Anthony brought up with um, El Puente and um, Newtown Creek Alliance, because the environmental impacts in Brooklyn in many communities, and we're also working in Sunset Park, um, those environmental impacts have played a toll for a very long time on on many community members, on their health, on their quality of life. And you combine that with social um, inadequacies and uh, social determinants like psychological stress and poverty, and you really you really have, you can have many problems. And I hope that work like Anthony and I are doing together and with other communities, we can we can help bring the capacity that's needed to these communities so that they can help themselves. I wanna
1: thank you again for speaking with our audience, for speaking with us. Um, we're looking forward to um, talking to you both in the future as well as speaking with um, other NYU scientists and other um, community local organizers um, that you know of. uh, So it can give like some depth um, and break down some of the data like for our listeners. So thank
3: you so much again.
2: Thank Thank you. Thank you for having us. I'm happy to come back.
3: Yes, and I'm happy to come back and bring some of my colleagues who can introduce you to uh, science, emerging science and things that are happening.
1: Yeah, I feel like this is like um, how I used to feel when Bill Nye the Science Guy would come on when I was a kid, like, yeah, like science is great. <laughs> <laughs> science can be fun. Or, you know, even if it's not a fun topic, like it, it, it is like great when you can truly understand like what's happening around you and just get a grip on... Like you're saying, you know, it's your community. Like you have to be responsible for what's going on. So thank you so much for speaking with us. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.
2: Thanks.
0: Thank you so much, Jasmine and and Judy and Anthony for that compelling conversation. Looking forward to our partnership in the future. We're going to go ahead and take our first music break. This track is a nice jazz record for your Sunday. Uh, It's by a band called Phyllis and it's called Lettuce. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we will have Emily with our national news segment.
4: Hello. Yes. All righty. So for the national news this week, I'm covering the shooting of Dante Wright. Uh, The research from the story comes from various New York Times articles, um, unless I note otherwise. Um, And I also definitely want to emphasize that the story, like there's still new news coming out about this every day. So by the between recording and airing there might be new things that come out um but that being said so on sunday april 11th in a minnesota city called brooklyn center a 20 year old black man named dante wright was shot and killed by the police during a traffic stop Uh, according to chief tom quote according to chief tom gannon of the brooklyn center police department Officers pulled Mr. Wright over on Sunday afternoon for a traffic violation related to expired registration tags. Officers then discovered that he had a warrant for his arrest. Uh, Dante's mother, Katie Wright, has said that her son called her as he was getting pulled over and told her that he was getting stopped because of, quote, air fresheners hanging from his rearview mirror. Katie Wright also said Dante was driving a car that he had been given by his family only two weeks previous. Uh, Chief Gannon said that as the cops were trying to detain Dante Wright, he, quote, stepped back into his car, prompting a brief struggle with officers. On Monday, body camera footage was shown to reporters. Quote, officers from the Brooklyn Center Police Department can be seen trying to handcuff the driver, Dante Wright, before he suddenly lurches back into his car. One of the officers aims a weapon at Mr. Wright and shouts, taser, taser, taser. She fires one round and Mr. Wright groans in pain. Holy shit. I just shot him. The officer can be heard shouting and as has, as can be heard in that video. And one of the many really awful details about this story, uh, police officials confirmed that quote, the officer who fatally shot a black man during a traffic stop near Minneapolis, uh, mistakenly confused her gun for her taser quote, the car traveled several blocks and struck another vehicle. The police and medical workers pronounced Mr. Wright dead at the scene. Uh, Katie Wright said that Dante's girlfriend was in the car during the incident, and, quote, the police said a woman in the car had injuries from the crash that were not life-threatening. Mr. Ms. Wright also said, quote, her son had dropped or put down the phone, after which she heard scuffling and an officer telling Mr. Wright not to run. Then she said someone hung up. When she called back, her son's girlfriend answered and told her that he had been shot. Quote, the Hennepin County medical examiner concluded Monday that Mr. Wright died of a gunshot wound uh, of the chest and manner of death is homicide. The incident occurred only, quote, about 10 miles from where Derek Chauvin is on trial in the killing of George Floyd. The shooter was identified as a 26-year veteran of the department named Kim Potter. On Tuesday, April 13th, her union announced that she had resigned that same day Quote, Chief Gannon also announced his resignation. Quote, court records indicate that a judge issued a warrant for Mr. Wright earlier this month after he missed a court appearance. He was facing two misdemeanor charges after the Minneapolis police said he had carried a pistol without a permit and had run from officers last June. Um, I I definitely want to emphasize misdemeanor here. Um, I'm going to close out the story also coming back to that, like release of information and how it's, being you know will undoubtedly be used in the media um, on sunday uh april 11th a vigil took place near the scene of the shooting later in the day quote outside the brooklyn center police department protesters chanted and threw bricks and cans at officers at least 20 businesses inside a nearby mall have been broken into an official said uh, mayor jacob Frey of minneapolis declared a state of emergency on monday and announced a curfew from 7 p.m monday to 6 a.m tuesday Demonstrations continued on Monday with chants of killer cop. Uh, at 7 p.m. the start of the curfew, the gathering was declared unlawful and tried to disperse the and cops tried to disperse the crowd using tear gas and flashbang grenades. On Tuesday morning, an official said that quote about 40 people had been arrested in Brooklyn Center on a variety of charges including violating curfew and rioting. Protests continued on Tuesday night. When an additional 79 people were arrested. On Wednesday, April 14th, it was announced that Kim Potter had been arrested herself and would be charged with second degree manslaughter. Quote, Ben Crump, a lawyer for the Wright family, said in a statement While we appreciate that the district attorney is pursuing justice for Dante, no conviction can give the Wright family their loved one back. This was no accident, this was an intentional, deliberate, and unlawful use of force. Uh, again, the story is still developing. There will be more news coming for quite a while, I imagine. Um, and, you know, Dante Wright needlessly and tragically lost his life at the hands of the police during a traffic stop. Um, as uh, an outlet called The Hill reported, he was the father of a one-year-old son. Um, it's, it's really a, tra- a tragedy um, on top of many tragedies uh, that we have seen recently and historically and all the time. Um And there will probably be a lot of, you know, right-wing rhetoric emphasizing that he had a police record, um, but it's just misdirection away from the fact that the police have once again acted as executioners, which is not their job. Um, There's a great tweet from actually February of this year, so about what a different incident that would have been happening at that time. It's really on point. Uh, It's from someone named Olya Yemi Olyurin, at Ms. Olyurin. And it is, quote, police don't have the right to kill you for not following their instructions, or if they believe you've broken the law. Stop perpetuating the idea that they do, they don't. Start valuing the lives of human beings over police feelings. It's a job. They aren't gods amongst men. And that is the story of as of, you know, research that's been happening um, that I've been able to do as of yet on the Dante Wright um, murder.
0: Well, first of all, thank you, Emily, for delivering the story. Um, definitely a tough one. We've all, all three of us delivered stories on this, co- on this topic, uh, too much in the last year. So I appreciate you, um, going in cause it's never easy to talk about this and I hate that we have to keep talking about it, but uh, I think this time, um, just one thing that I, in the stories that I've read, you know, we're talking about how she claimed she thought she had a taser and she had her gun and how different both of these articles are. And just, you know, this, this frivolous nature of power that comes when you have a weapon on you. Uh, we see this and not just the police, we see this in the mass shootings of America, but you know, for this to happen during this time in the middle of this fucking case, Like, it just shows you how much work needs to be done. I feel like over the past few weeks, we've been reporting quite a bit of great legislation and changes and things that are happening to uh, right some of the wrongs of history. But this one thing, you know, this one fucking thing, like, it's a thing that it it, is. I almost feel like it's, it's characterized by the nature of the policing in each town that we report on. Because even when we, you know, I reported on that change... Um, in the law in New York City a couple of weeks ago, this if it's if there's no federal mandate to policing, if there are no overarching sort of understanding how wrong the nature of policing is in this country, from a global perspective, a larger perspective, like this is not some one-off shit. This is something we talk about every fucking month. You know what I mean? And if we're not talking about it on this show, you hear about it somewhere else. Like it's so fervent in our minds and it's so painful right now for all of us to be watching this case waiting for it to come down and then now to see this shit happen again to someone so young so young and regardless of what his past was a fucking air freshener like who doesn't have that in their car many of my friends have been posting like You know, I took my shit down, like I took my my prayer beats down or anything I had on the the hood of my car, the roof of my car. Like it's to the point that we are afraid to do things that we've done our whole lives. And this is something that we live in on a regular. You know, I don't currently own a car, but I always had a fucking air freshener there, you know, so just just the thought of that. It's just so, you know, it's it's very really sensitive, I think, to all of us right now, because we're still in this. But don't get it twisted, y'all. Just because we have a bunch of good news about the things that this administration is doing and changes that are happening in the world, this is a real problem. And it is, we're nowhere near fixing it.
1: Yeah, this, there's so many things about this case that are so disturbing. Like, for one, I know we've mentioned it before on the show, but A lot of the people that are killed by police are disabled. And I've read that Dante Wright um, had a learning disability. Um, After he was killed, the police station in that city raised um, one of those thin blue line fascist flags at the police station after being ordered not to do so which in my eyes is basically, you know, saying that you're celebrating that you murdered a young black person and you're going to openly defy who is supposed to be your boss telling you not to fly such a flag. The woman, this potter officer, the t- she was a cop longer than that boy was alive on this earth and was wasn't she head of the police union at one point or was a police union rep or something so she knows exactly to say some bullshit and twist it around to make it look like the cop you know made some kind of mistake it wasn't a mistake you know and i really am also disgusted with the way the president responded with you know as i'm not surprised that it was his response but the same crap about like oh you know we have to wait until we have all the facts of the case that come out but there's absolutely no justification for looting ever When you say something like that, what you're saying is in your worldview, there's maybe a reasonable explanation for why this young man was murdered. But you cannot ever think of a reasonable justification for why people want to tear things up in response to a murder. That shows you how much that person values Black life, and it's not a lot. So it's. I feel horribly for the family. It's uh, you know people need to open their eyes like to the true nature of what these people are trying to do, like when you're openly celebrating and bragging and doing shit that you know you're gonna get off that's not something that you can reform. It's beyond that,
4: yeah, yeah, it's bad um and the the whole idea that like the the it's hard to kind of process the idea that the cop. Thought, like she's saying she thought she had her taser but had her gun like the fact that those things like like in what world that can even happen is just it's so fucked up.
0: <laughs> You've been policing longer than he been alive. Yes. Been. You like didn't even what have
4: tasers at one point. Like what right like what are you talking about and the New York Times actually published an article um on the 14th about how there's been um 15 other there's been 15 incidences of officers mistaking guns for tasers and only three were convicted um which is just like fascinating that it would it would even happen that much like are you like what like (laughs) it's just it's just another really awful detail um as i i already said i'm repeating myself but like in the in the situation that's so you know the word awful doesn't even encompass it
0: um it's just so fucked up <laughs> it's disgusting It's some bullshit and quite honestly you know whew, I don't know how 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 much more that city can take you know I just I am just thinking about what it feels like to be uh, someone you know from that space that is like in the middle of this fucking trial and um, I don't know if you guys seen the latest on the Chauvin case today, but that little bullshit they pulled with this expert. Oh, anyway, we're not talking about that. My point is that I I can't even imagine what it feels like to be on the ground there. And even the the way that they are responding, the police, that the way they're responding to uh, the people in the streets, they're breaking all kinds of uh, mandates and laws and things that they have put into action in, in that city. In, in reverence of the George Floyd case, they're they're just breaking. It's like they have no fucking control out there. All these mandates and different you know policies and things that they put in place because of all of the unrest that happened. It's like they're not even they're not even uh, uh, complying to that. And it's it's just so obvious that they are so out of hand. Like I I really don't even know how to fix this problem. But that's one of the places where I, I just feel like they- there's nothing that can be done, but just like a whole fucking redo. You know what I'm saying? And unfortunately, since the powers that be do what they do, you know, she got out, uh, she posted a bail for a hundred thousand dollars and whatever. She's on the streets again. It's just, it's just really awful that there's this much, much evil in a time where we're all in so much pain.
1: Yeah. And she resigned and said, there was some letter that she put out saying that she loved every minute of her Time on the force, or whatever, you know, no acknowledgement that one of those minutes was her snuffing out this boy, you know. And I know this is happening in Minnesota, not that far from where George Floyd was killed, but it's just every day there's another name. Like there's a 13 year old child that was killed by Chicago PD just now, there was a 16 year old child killed in Maryland by the police. You know, and just as a side note, like neither one of those um, victims were Black, but this type of violence, it might be disproportionately affecting Black people, but it's it comes for others too when these people feel like they have impunity and can do whatever they want, cover it up, lie about it. We saw what happened with the Afro-Latino um, army officer that was rough housed outside of his car. By unfortunately, by I think it was a white officer, and then the main instigator was um, a non black Latinx officer harassing him. Like, it's never, none of these things are just about a bad apple or a, a particular city. It's pervasive and it's everywhere in this country. And I wish more people would wake up to that and stop clinging to this desperation to make cops out like they're automatically the good guys. They are not.
0: Absolutely. Um, You know, reporting on that story about the end of uh, qualified immunity in New York was really important to me because this is just one move that's been making. But if this law was a federal mandate, the whole fucking thing would shift because you can't just be immune because you're an officer. You can't just like take that route. You know, that's that's not even there. Holding people accountable for their fucking actions and what is what needs to happen. So. All right. We're going to take a break, y'all. Thank you so much, Emily, for reporting on that story. Um, The next song is called Freedom, and it's by Justin Bieber featuring Beam. We'll be right back.
1: Big up to my brother Blessing sons and daughters, we are looking for the answers, we in search of living water. Blind
3: to Welcome see, back to
0: Objection reside. to the Rule. And now we'll jump right into our international news segment. Um, this story is drawn from, the first part of it is from an article on unaids.org. Um, and it was titled. Um, actually, I don't have the title here, but I'll just jump right into it and then I'll hop over to another one uh, that's actually from Dem- democracy.now. So, one year from the declaration of the COVID 19 pandemic, the People's Vaccine Alliance is warning that developing countries are facing critical shortages of oxygen and medical supplies to cope with COVID-19 cases, yet the majority have been unable to administer a single dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. In contrast, rich nations have vaccinated their citizens at a rate of one person per second over the last month. Many of the rich nations, including the U.S., U.K., and the EU, are blocking a proposal By over 100 developing countries to be discussed with the World Trade Organization, which would override the monopolies held by pharmaceutical companies and allow an urgently needed scale up in the production of safe and effective COVID-19 vaccines to ensure poorer countries get access to the doses they desperately need. While more poor countries... We'll see the arrival of doses in the coming weeks from the World Health Organization's COVAX facility. The amounts available mean only 3% of people in those countries can hope to be vaccinated by mid-year and only one-fifth at best by the end of 2021. Almost 1 million people worldwide have signed a call by the People's Vaccine Alliance. Um, And they're a group that's organizing a bunch of other organizations together for this call. Those organizations include Oxfam, Frontline AIDS, UNAIDS, Global Justice Now, and the UNICEF. They are organizing for rich countries to stop protecting the big pharma monopolies and profits over other people's lives. The Alliance warned that in South Africa, Malawi, and other African nations, history um, is to be looked upon because this is a very similar situation for other vaccines. Millions of people died in the early 2000s because pharmaceutical monopolies had priced successful treatments for HIV AIDS out of reach for up to, and they were at $10,000 a year. Pharma monopolies were eventually overruled, allowing the mass production of cheap, effective treatment for those living with HIV and AIDS, meaning millions of people are alive today who would have otherwise perished. On March 10th and 11th, More than 100 developing countries led by South Africa and India began pleading their case to the World Trade Organization for a waiver of trade related aspects of intellectual property. And there's an acronym called TRIPS, if you follow in this story that they're using, uh, which would remove legal barriers for more countries and manufacturers to produce the vaccines to protect people and join the economic recovery ahead. At the same time, qualified vaccine producers all over the world send ready to produce more vaccines if they were allowed access to the technology and know-how being held under lock and key by these companies. New capacity could be brought on in the stream within just a few months. So I'm gonna shift over to the article from democracy.now uh, d- democracynow.org. And the title of this one is called Ex-World Leaders and Nobel Laureates Call for Biden to Waive uh, Patent Rules for COVID-19 Vaccines. 175 former heads of state and Nobel laureates are calling on President Biden to back a waiver on World Trade Organization intellectual property rules for COVID-19 vaccines during the pandemic. Nine out of 10 people in the most poor countries likely will not receive a vaccine this year, according to an open letter. But the IP waiver would, quote, expand global manufacturing capacity unhindered by industry monopolies that are driving the dire supply shortages, blocking access to the vaccine. Signatories include Liberian President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, former British Prime Minister Gordon Brown, and a couple of other people that have done this work in the past. A separately, a coalition of 250 organizations, including Amnesty International, Public Citizens, and Doctors Without Borders, issued a similar plea to the head of the World Trade Organization. The fate of the international effort could be decided on May 5th at the next major meeting for the WTO members. A Nobel laureate professor, Muhammad Yunus, had this to say, quote, for the rich world. This proposed act of human solidarity to ensure that medicines and vaccines get to the whole human family simultaneously is in their own self-interest, not just an act of charity. So that is the end of my recap. Yeah, this is a thing. What do you guys think? I mean, capitalism, you know
4: fucks everything up again. No. Um, <laughs> um it's just it's really it's really sad and ups and angering, right? That it's possible to produce more vaccines, but there's artificial holds in place keeping that from happening for financial reasons and like money, like, isn't real. So like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it's all made up. It's like, it's a made up concept. And like, you know, it's not this, you know, I mean, it's similar where, you know, like for, for similar economic or bullshit reasons, like farmers, if they have a surplus of food, will just sometimes destroy it rather than lose money on it or something like that. There's too much food in the market when there's, you know, there's people starving out there, right. It's, there's all these like artificial, things in place because of capitalism that does not serve the population in the way that it could if those like made up things weren't there Um, on top of the fact that you know none of us are safe until like all of us are safe worldwide right like mutations and all that um I try not to think about it a lot because it makes me panic but um but you know this isn't like this isn't every man for himself every woman for herself like whatever like that we I think we've seen this year that we all need to um work together and help everyone
1: or none of us get helped yeah it's so unfair it reminds me of like what you see happening with insulin and so many other things that are very cheap to produce but necessary to keep people alive and there should have never been like a patent on something like a vaccine to help prevent people from dying during a pandemic. Like the whole idea that that was even allowed is so, it's indefensible and it's murderous. It's like genocidal, basically. I totally agree.
0: You took the words out of my mouth, Jasmine. I feel like, you know, this is, this is basically like When I was in undergrad or grad school, um, my program had an addition to UN studies. So many times when I do these stories talking about the different organizations of the UN, you know, I feel like I have a deeper understanding of what it's supposed to do, right? What the reason it was designed and how it's supposed to work. This is the exact reason that this organization was created to make sure that we have a global understanding of the problems that face humanity. And if we have that, we should be able to do more. But having that exchange of information, having it available to all the nations, it doesn't matter whether you're developing or developed. The availability of access to information, to medication, to food, to all of these things that um, cause, you know, life to suck for most of the world. Let's, let's not get it twisted. Like most of the world are people who live in extreme poverty. Um, It's very sad that we're even having this conversation when we all were fucked up by this virus. Like it was so very clear that every place on this planet is suffering. I read an article today um, just preparing for this. And it was talking about how people in India are sharing beds in the hospital because they have not been given additional supplies and, and whatever methods that they were using to um, have more care facilities just wasn't supported. They just couldn't do it. So these are grand populations of people. I know Brazil has also had a very hard time with the virus and trying to regulate, you know, the the deaths um, by having available resources for people. But this is just one of those moments in life where this organization and all those that are supporting this drive are supposed to gain from the access to knowledge and information and patents and all this other shit that they do to block people from having access to what they need to live. So, you know, just definitely uh something to think about. I watched a very interesting story on the Today Show this morning. They did a special um uh edition story about a woman who traveled to Uganda to show the process of getting these vaccines and she was literally carrying like 40 vaccines. And had to travel for like seven hours to reach people in these outlier um, islands that are off of one of the, the seas there. And the doctors that were on ground, they only had enough vaccines for a percentage of the healthcare workers in this country. And the, the extreme measures they went to just deliver these vaccines to these people, it's insane. And it's like, why are we doing this shit? It's 2021. You got fucking robot dogs doing shit. Why can't we mass produce something that will save the world? Why is there anything that stops us from doing that? That's injustice and it's genocide and it's fucked up and it needs to be stopped. We need to do better. Um, So obviously I'm very passionate about this and I appreciate y'all letting me rant. But the reality is this is the world we live in, you know. And it's, it's just really unfortunate that people have to continue to suffer because of capitalism. All right, so I'm going to take a small breath and we're going to lead into some good weird news. Emily, yes. what you got for us? <laughs>
4: yes, it's like the interesting, weird, cool baby story this week. All right, so this comes from an April 6th New York Times article by Dave Phillips titled Modern Crime-Seeking Methods Versus the mystery of World War II deaths. DNA based techniques that have successfully tracked down elusive serial killers may soon be used to help identify thousands of American service members known but to God. So the article explains that there are still about 6,000 US troops killed in World War II that have yet to be identified, even as DNA technology has gotten more sophisticated over time. Quote, in order to work, DNA identification requires a sample from a blood relative for comparison, and in the cases of many of the World War II dead, the military can find no siblings, no parents, no children, not even distant cousins. In these cases, despite remarkable advances, the Army runs into the same dead ends today that it encountered in the 1940s. So the Defense Department is considering trying a strikingly different approach, Instead of finding relatives and then matching their DNA, military researchers want to use the DNA to find the relatives. It is a tactic that has helped solve scores of cold murder cases in recent years, including that of the Golden State Killer. Investigators take DNA found at crime scenes and upload it to public genetic databases in hopes of finding matches in family trees that can point back to one individual. Quote, but developing a new DNA-first policy is thorny, said Dr. McMahon, the Army DNA identification expert, because the military must not only set rules for which graves should be opened and when, but also figure out how to uncover the identities of the dead without invading the privacy of the living. It is a tricky endeavor because genetic searches can reveal infidelity and other long-hidden family secrets. Our goal is to do no more harm than has already been done, Dr. McMahon said. Even so, he said the army is forging ahead and hopes to begin using the technique soon. The article dives into how this would be particularly helpful in the identification of Black troops. Uh, The usual methods are not as effective, quote, because the legacies of slavery and racial discrimination have made many Black families hard to trace through official records. Uh, Megan Smoliniak, a a genealogist, explains that this is sometimes due to Black soldiers' relatives appearing, quote, only sparingly in the paper trail of voting rolls, property records, and local news clippings, African Americans, even if they have been in a community for hundreds of years, are just absent from the records. She said they just aren't there. Uh, so, uh, even though this technology like gives me like the willies, kind of right? Like I first heard about it when they caught the Golden State Killer using this after forty years on the you know on the run, um, and it, it's kind of like. A little bit like brave new worldy, you know, to you to have the ability to do this. Um, it is really interesting and possibly a good thing that it's being used um, for like these good purposes. Um, but yeah, like, you know, it'd be pretty cool to have these um, soldiers identified after 75 years,
0: about pretty wild. That is pretty wild. Like 75. Oh my gosh. I don't really know how to feel about this. I'm like, it's good that we can do this, but it's, it's weird. Interesting. I think
4: like the whole serial killer, yeah. like part of it, like news stuff is like, whoa, you know, it's pretty interesting.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that story. Uh, pretty cool. Something to look into, see what evolves there. We're going to go out and close out the show this week. Thank you so much for listening um, to this week's Objection to the Rule. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify. Please listen up for more, continue listening for more independent Brooklyn media. Uh, the final track of the day is a tribute to the late Grey DMX. Um, when we, when I put the music together for the last week's show, he literally passed the next day and I was just like, fuck, you know, cause this is a thing that I do, but I was actually a fan of DMX. I had his albums. He made me feel okay to be angry. <laughs> Not much to say like the reality, like sometimes you just need that rage against the machine energy. Um, but this song that I chose today is actually just him telling his, his journey. You know, he struggled with addiction his whole life. He had a really rough, Upbringing, and I don't know if you guys know too much about him, but um, when he was on, he was excellent um, as a as a hip hop artist, <laughs> and I just really liked his oh. work. So this is "Slipping" by DMX. Rest in peace, King. We'll see you guys next week. Bye.
1: Bye. See. Bye. To live
2: to suffer. But to survive, bro, well, that's to find meaning in the suffering.
1: Hey, yo, I'm slipping. Bye. to falling.
2: I can't get up, hey, I'm slipping, I'm fallin', I can't get up, hey I'm slippers, I'm fallin', I got to get up, keep me back on my feet so I can't see Ayyo I'm slippers, I'm fallin', I can't get up, hey yo, I'm slippers, I'm fallin', I can't get up, hey I'm slippers, I'm fallin', I got to get up.